Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. And look, I love all the conversations that I'm fortunate to have uh, right here with everybody who is in the industry of golf, whether they're playing, calling it, running an organization. In this particular case, the person who's going to join me in a second had a Hall of Fame career. She was actually the first person that went into the LPGA Hall of Fame. She went into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2000, and she's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. And if you look at all time, whether it's coaches or players, who's had a Hall of Fame career as a player and then as a broadcaster, or a coach and then a broadcaster? John Madden, John McEnroe, well, Judy Rankin did both. And Judy is not only exceptionally skilled as a broadcaster, she's just a really good person. And she's such a valuable voice who is stepping away from her responsibilities on television. But there is nobody I'd rather talk to about the state of the game and also to kind of look at her career and how it all got started after she was done playing at the highest level. So I'm looking forward to this as much as any, this conversation with a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. We welcome in the member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, Judy Rankin. Judy, my friend, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And I hope you are. I'm doing really well, thanks. And I, I will tell you, as you said before we came on here together, you said, I did this all by myself. So I want everybody out there to know, Judy did all of this by herself. I actually got on the Zoom meeting all by myself. <laughs> and I was, I was a little panicked um, eight minutes ago. But here I am. <laughs> that, that's how I feel anytime I have a Zoom call. I, I still think you would give me one aside with technology. I am completely ignorant on all of it. But you look great. And I know that, uh, you know, the week is it's a big week. I know you're going to miss being at the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, but I know you're always thrilled to be around uh, the people at the Captain's Club and, and obviously being with Jack and Barbara and everybody there at the Memorial Tournament. I, I want to go back because there's a lot of breath to all the things you've done in your life and in your career. Where did golf start with you? How old were you when you first put a golf club in your hand? Six. In St. Louis, it's when they had the very first driving ranges with lights at night. And uh, at this point, my mother became very ill, but at this point, she was not. She and I went and watched my, to watch my father hit golf balls. We sat on the bench back there, you know. And as any six-year-old does, I wanted to try. And turned out I could hit it. And my father became fascinated, you know, that I could hit it. So the next uh, year of my life was spent hitting golf balls and um, much of it in a hotel basement that a golf pro in St. Louis had at the, at the Chase Hotel. And it was an indoor basement place to hit golf balls in the winter. You know, there were tarps up and sand at the bottom. And so this golf pro and my father sort of built my golf swing. And by the time I was, by the time I was eight, it was pretty perfect. And it's gone downhill ever since. <laughs> 
What was it after that first time? Similarly, I was six years old on a, on a range in Boone, North Carolina with my dad, um, and I could hit it. But but you you achieved you got to the rarest of air uh, as a player. What brought what kept bringing you back? Improvement is that what was the continual stimulation and curiosity with the game because you were getting better at it? Well, there was no doubt my father was a driving force, and as I said, my mother became very ill right about then. Um, she she had a malignant brain tumor and died when I was eleven. So my father and I were spending a lot of time alone. And um, he became, you know, really dogged about my um, being as good as maybe I could be. And he used to say, you don't have to do this, but we can't afford to do it if you're not going to do it as well as you can. So his whole thought at that time, so we're in the 50s here, Mm -hmm. his whole thought at that time uh, was he always said, if you could play golf well, it'd make your life better. Um, and how many times I have said that came true. Uh, but I was more the case of I was a pleaser, I think, as a child. Maybe I still am a little bit. Um, but um, our life was quite serious because of my mother. And um, uh, I just pretty much, you know, did what my father told me to do and wanted me to do. So I kind of think that golf found me rather than me falling for the game. And then... You know, it as time went on, it became evident that this was uh, what I was going to do. And you know, if, if if all things had been well, uh, what what I thought I wanted was in the fourth grade. I wrote this great story about a girl named Connie who was an ice skater. And um, probably lucky for me, that's not what I went after because um, I wouldn't be talking to you today, and I would not have been successful either because I can barely skate. So um, that was all the early years. And then, and then things, good things happened and opportunities happened when I didn't expect them at all. Uh, and so too young, I turned pro when I was 17. That, first of all, to turn pro at 17, to win a, a state amateur at 14, you're a prodigy, you're special. Did golf make you feel special at that age? Um, I, I suppose to some degree, but you know, when I was not, um, I wasn't a huge part of the high school scene and this and that, although I had good friends and in junior high, I was a cheerleader. So for basketball, um, and, uh, but, um, golf was just, it, it was too much of who I was really in, in many sorts of ways. My, my grandfather would refer to me to my grandmother as Judy the golfer, and she would get so mad at him for that, you know, because she, I don't know, she had a little wisdom, I suppose. Um, but golf was, um, like I said, it found me, and I kept having things drive me forward. Uh, I, and I, like I also have already said, I, I probably turned pro too young, but there were there were other factors involved, and we were always of very modest means. I don't know what made any of us think you could earn money playing golf because you really couldn't. <laughs> um, you know what what you earned was uh, would keep you eating. Right? Did you um, yeah. when you when you win early? 
I would assume that you you have these expectations of yourself. Um, did winning make it harder to keep winning or did it make it more possible to keep winning? Because momentum's a very, it's an elusive thing, particularly positive momentum, but when you get it, you can ride it. Did, did you ride momentum to more wins or did winning make it harder to keep winning? I didn't win for six years. Um, I'm almost a Betsy King story. You know, she didn't win for eight years. Right. And then look at how fabulous her career was. Um, but I had a very hard time winning. Part of that uh, was came from my own mistakes or whatever. And part of it's just, it's hard to win. And, you know, part of it sometimes is just bad luck. You play really well and somebody plays better. But uh, when I finally did win, I thought it would open up the floodgates, but it didn't for a year or so. But then, then I got where I entered a tournament um, thinking that I had a chance to win. Yeah. And, um, and I had two or three years where I was really successful. Uh, and, um, and I don't, this Gary, a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, uh, but I am quite convinced that I, I am not by nature a competitive person, but there is no doubt when I would put the tea in the ground, I became a competitive person. Uh, but I don't, my, I, like Annika, I believe in knowing her a bit and then watching her all those years. I think Annika is one of the most competitive people I've ever seen. And I think she thrives on it. And I think that what's probably one of the reasons she's such a parent because she's going to be the best parent, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But um, I don't, I don't think I ever, I don't think I thrive on competition. I, I don't think I have to be the best or the first or whatever. Um, but there is no doubt that that came out in me when I played golf. Did you, you had, you had close losses, particularly in major championships. Did they sting less? Because when it was over, that the, it, they still hurt. Yeah, yeah. I did a lot of crying playing golf. I even cried quite sincerely one time when I won. Um, I won in Canada and, and we were driving and um, Yippie was driving and um, I was in the passenger seat and I don't know, it's just all the emotion of, of everything. And um, I think sometimes people who watch um, the best golfers on television or in person or whatever, you, and I do the same thing we all do. You, you sometimes forget that they have a real life going on too. You know, that, this, that that's their career, but there's life behind the scenes. And for a whole lot of reasons, I just, you know, cried for 30 minutes and I just won. So it tells you a little bit about what that, that competitive world is like and um, how you keep so many emotions in to play golf at a high level. And you do, and you have to. You mentioned, you, you mentioned Yippie, your late husband. Um, and I, I, Talking to players who, you know, look, it's the only thing you, you think about at a young age. You, you have this dream, you fulfill the dream, and then, then life starts to intersect, whether it's, it's 
you know, getting married, having children. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I've always marveled at about Jack Nicholas is this sense of balance uh, that he maintained at the, the, the highest level uh, with, without feeling like there was this extraordinary burden that came with it. Um, did you feel like you were, you were achieving for more than yourself once, that, once you, you had a relationship where you were in it together? Your life was not a solitary pursuit. It was something you were sharing. Did that make it more fun? Or did that make it harder like you were achieving for both of you? Well, I think most people would tell you, and maybe they have their head screwed on really well uh, if it's not the case, but most people will tell you that uh, those close to them, whether it's a parent, a husband, a wife, or whatever, um, they tend to live and die with how you play. And they are as emotionally involved almost as you are, and yet they have no ability to change anything. They, they have no ability in the heat of the battle to change anything. So they go through a lot too. Um, and and I, was, I was a long time before all the sports psychologists. Uh, so, you know, you have, you have this dad, you have this husband, you even have this kid now who is, you know, saying, gee, why'd you do that? Or, you know, why'd you play so bad today? Or, you know, uh, whatever it may be. Um, I even, even Nancy Lopez said that if she didn't play well, it was really quiet around the house at night. So <laughs> um, it's, uh, that's hard. And, you know, players that we know today, like Lexi Thompson, maybe players like Bubba Watson, um, all these players are talking about the fact that you have to separate what you do for a living um, from your real, your, your real life. Uh, and, and I don't think if you're an accountant, you tend to take it home as much as you do when you're um, what you do at what you do well is very public. I always say golf is a little bit like taking an SAT test every day and they put your score in the paper, mm. you know. So um, but I think there's so many players now talking about that. And it, it's a it's. It's not amazing to me because I know how everybody in your circle gets so involved. Um, and uh, but I I do think I was never a big fan of the sports psychology thing early on, but I can see where it's it's helped a lot of people to think straight and to uh, get their priorities right and to stay um, healthier mm. while competing um, on a big stage. Uh, and, and with with many expectations and and as as crowds grow and all those things, it's not just the expectations of your family, but now it becomes the expectations of your fans, you know, and they can get on Twitter and tell you what they think. So there. <laughs> yeah. And Judy, you know, your analogy about the SAT test, I love it. And now with the proliferation of social media and all the coverage that you can identify a, a feature group and watch every shot, they want to analyze every answer on the test before you go on to the next, the next question. Like, I don't like the way that she or he answered that question, but let's just go on to the next question. We'll see how the result of this test is uh, when it's finally over. You're, you're, you're spot on about that. You know, when you, when you have the career you had, Vare trophies, money titles, players uh, of the year, th there was a sense, I would imagine, of, of accomplishment and pride. 
But then what's next? And and recently, I know Jay Billis had this conversation with Annie Roddick, and he said, I didn't know what was next. Like, I'm, I'm a young guy. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do for the balance of my life. And for you, it was television. And, and you were joining a team. Now, I'm a junior in high school in 1984, and I'm, I'm curious about TV, and I'm a complete golf geek. And you join what I think is like the 27 Yankees as far as a broadcast team. I mean, Jim McKay and, and David Marr is my, my favorite of all time, and, and Jack Whitaker and Peter Alice. I mean, this is, this is tall cotton you're getting ready to walk into. What was your feeling about doing this? Well, uh, first I wondered when, why I had the courage on the telephone to say, yes, I would do it. <laughs> and secondly, um, I was really frightened um, and trying to act like I wasn't. But um, I, I tend to be, you know, reasonably honest. And I think everybody uh, knew that this was, you know, quite the stage for me. I had played very poorly at the end of my career. I, um, I had a very bad back and I blamed, you know, every single thing on either the way I swung the club or on the, my equipment. I'd change it. And it was just, but the fact is I physically couldn't do it anymore. And um, I, uh, I had a procedure uh, done in 1983 that was not surgery, but it it was worse than when I had surgery and I got worse. Uh, so at the time when they called me, you can imagine, I, I mean, I, uh, I wasn't playing golf at all. And um, you can imagine how welcome that call was. I had always loved golf on television. And uh, so I went to that first tournament and I, I've told this many times. The blessing of all blessings was I didn't have to look in the camera in the job I had. So I was out on the golf course. It was the women's open. And all I had to do was an answer Jim McKay and Dave Mars questions and talk about, as I remember, Hollis Stacy. And, uh, and so I could kind of lean against a tree and talk about what I knew. And I didn't have to look in a camera ever that whole week. And that gave me a little confidence because, you know, I was basically phoning it in. And um, then I got the call the next spring. Actually, it was very late spring. It was not too long before the US Open um, at Oakland Hills. And they asked me if I would come do the men's open. And if you think I was scared that other time, <laughs> then I'm flying up there thinking, what in the world have I done? You know, and uh, I, you know, the and the players. I th I always say, uh, the vast majority and any number I knew, but the vast majority, um, they were so great to me. There were a few who it's like when you bring the new puppy in the house and the other dog won't look at it. There were a few who wouldn't look at me, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I guess I I won them over over time and. Um, and then ABC, and, and I think everybody should know this, they said the very best thing to me that week they could have ever said, which it got, my, it, it got me thinking right and maybe speaking to the television audience right. And they said, we do not want your expertise as a woman. We want your expertise as a golfer. Mm. And that was probably the best 
thing that could have happened to me because I would have tried to figure out how to put the two together. And I no longer had to do that. And uh, it, it, meant, it meant a lot, uh, I think, for my performance. Not that mine was a performance, but for my communication. And uh, I, I don't, it, it, it gave, it, it, it helped me for so many years. And I always remember exactly what was said to me. Do you, um, the, the uh, I've said about you, you're, you're the most efficiently impactful communicator in the medium that I've ever seen. Was that just luck or was that something that you consciously worked on to be able to make points so economically, but you would leave people, me included, going, I'll be damned, that's really astute. How'd she do that in eight words? Well, so I was, you know, after Rossi. Yeah. And a little bit maybe Ed Sneed. Yep. I was the next on-course commentator uh, around the board, I believe. And at that time, you didn't have the role you have today. So you answered questions and you... You, uh, you didn't even control your own mic. It was all done in trucks. Um, so what happened with me is I was at the very beginning of that role and I grew into what it's become today where you actually have your own space and there's a rhythm to how this works and this, that, and the other. Um, and where you control your own mic, all those kinds of things. All that happened in the years, the early years that I was working in when I spent so much time on the PGA tour, but there was a, there was a need for um, fewer words. You, you didn't have that long to say it. So you had to find a way to, to say what mattered, I think. And uh, golf has um, maybe a, a little, it, you're trying to do that in a way that makes a point but is also just a little bit conversational and another thing that abc did which i think is part of television golf now is they made it very clear uh that the show was not about us but about the players and so they finally as time went on they find, found a way to have the rhythm to the way we did things and how you would hear it in your ear if you were on the golf course uh so that we didn't have to, you didn't have to say names. Uh, so so the, the host would introduce the shot, but maybe the whole announcer would say, here is, or the host will say, we'll go to 12. The whole announcer will say, this is so-and-so, so-and-so, uh, you know, third shot. Uh, and then that's, now it's my space. And they never, we never have to use the names. So you use the names, periodically just to confirm to people who you are but other than that you don't and that there was a rhythm to that that abc created the um the the one person i didn't mention before that was part of this it was a very limited role but it was jack nicholas who had a contract with abc uh to to contribute and and you know, I famously in 1986, when Greg Norman won the Open Championship, Jack came down from the tower. He was one of the first people to meet him. But I always thought Jack was, and I was saying this to somebody earlier, Judy, 
that he is so competitive that, that every time I've interviewed him, he always says to me, Gary, what are you going to ask me? And I'll start to tell him, I'll say, oh, just ask me anything. And he, there, I can tell that sometimes there is true indifference about doing it. And I get it. And then he gets in the middle of it and he can't help himself. He just wants to give a good answer. I thought he was a great analyst. Um, what were your thoughts about being around him in an environment where, look, he won the Masters in 1986. He was a 46-year-old man and was still highly competitive, and he was lending his voice to this incredible list of voices of accomplished broadcasters and Whitaker and McKay and players and you and, and Peter Alice and Dave Marr. What was Jack like then? You know, I, I got to know him a little bit then, but not all that well. When I've really gotten to know him is in the last 15 years. Uh, and I, I was pretty put off by him in those early years where we worked together. And, uh, you know, he was he was to me like he is to everybody else. I, I, would, I thought he was Jack Nicholas. <laughs> and now, now he's Jack and he actually calls me on my birthday. So <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, I told this story at Memorial one time and uh, Jack was Jack was in the booth and he was the analyst and I was at the 17th hole at St. Andrews with John Daly. And uh, I, as I told the story, I said, well, this is the only time in my life I ever really wanted to kiss John Daly, but he was in the right rough over there at 17. He'd hit it kind of over the corner of the building. And, um, and I was describing the shot and, and the lie. And Jack said, well, you know, Judy, uh, that long wispy stuff can really wrap around a hosel and turn that thing over. And I am thinking, and I guess I said, I think he can play from this lie. And about then, uh, John Daly hit it about 15 feet from the hole at 17. And if I could have kissed him at that very moment, I would have because, <laughs> because I was right. And because what, I mean, I was there giving Jack all kinds of credit. I was there, uh, but it was a, it was a funny, funny thing. And um, I think, I think Jack in the early times uh, was a, a, a little put off with my being there. I think he thought he had to school me a little bit and you know, the chance, the the truth probably is many times he did i know i learned something from him uh but that was that moment when i privately got to you know uh get my confidence boost uh but i was also with jack when he played his last round at st andrews when we were on um uh, tnt usa i'm not quite sure but it was a friday and um i was in such awe of the way people uh, received him. So through these years, as as your you know your profile as a broadcaster is getting to the point that you know not only are you accepted by all the players in the game, along comes somebody who is a like a hundred year flood, and that's Tiger. And <laughs> and I, I just give me give me a a first impression and kind of an overall capsule of what it was like the atmosphere, the experience, and the, and the optics of what you were watching when he came along? Well, I was lucky that I was there at Milwaukee the, the uh, week he turned pro. 
So I, I actually, you know, face to face, physically got to know him when he was so very young. And then I was inside the ropes with him so many times uh, that we had quite the inside the rope friendship. And I, um, I, I so appreciate how he um, let me know that he trusted me and that I was at least presenting what he was doing, you know, pretty well. And uh, that, that we could have a little talk here and there and he would know that I had a sense of what was for television and what was just us having a talk. And I also believe that Tiger had some sort of sense of that I was doing a job. And at some point later on, as he became, as he became Tiger or that flood that you spoke of, um, I know he had to have in his smart brain known that every time he gave me access, that was helping me. Mm. So uh, we had that, we have that little bond. Uh, and, um, you know, for, for whatever hasn't been right in Tiger's life, everything that he ever did with me was always right. Mm. And um, I like the guy and I respect the guy. And I saw golf that I don't know. And you rarely, you rarely get to see some of the things that I saw with Tiger and um, ABC, ABC, ABC and then ESPN who put me in a position to see some of those things and to be there. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, and I've said this before too, but um, when you're not playing, when you have a little expertise and then you're not playing, you get the real sense of appreciating what people do, the men and the women. And that is what's been so great about the seat I've had all these last years is I was always a little bit angry or down or whatever about my own game. I'd be up and I'd be down. Um, I, I must have, you know, in, inside of me, I might've been a little love hate relationship. Right. But now I, I love the game in a completely different way. And I love it when I see people who are so uber talented. I mean, these young women who are at the top of the game on the LPJ tour, it just, you know, Raymond Floyd, we were, um, we were at a Ryder Cup. I'm trying to think where, but um, what was the Ryder Cup in Kentucky? Yeah, in Louisville, 2008 at Valhalla. Okay. That's it. Thank you. So we're on the practice team, standing back there watching. And he said, Judy, they play a game I am completely unfamiliar with. <laughs> and so I have been describing a game that I am pretty unfamiliar with other than I've watched it come to this. And, uh, you know, those are some of the interesting things I, that I think. And, and I do sit, now I can sit and watch golf. And I see here and there around the world, women doing what I did. And um, I, I, don't, I don't take pride in too many things. I don't think that's a good thing. But I am, I am so happy to see that women are accepted in all forms of our sport now. And, that some of them, and they just do a great job. 
and they're being rewarded in ways that I think are, are overdue. And I, I do want to talk about wh where the, the state of the game is. I, I want to ask you one last thing on the broadcast front. Um, when you when you said goodbye for all intents and purposes, as far as you know, your your regular role as the lead analyst was at the Chevron, um, and you you've shared a lot of time on the camera and away from it with Terry Gannon. Um, and, and Terry is somebody I've been fond of going all the way back to when he used to take really ill-advised jump shots at NC State. And I'm a North Carolina <laughs> fan, um, but I appreciated his gumption to, to take these shots. But anyway, there's a chemistry that you two have that is very rare. A lot of people work well together, but there are people that I and I'm, I, I spend a lot of attention listening and watching what I what what it is on television, particularly sports broadcasting, you two have something. Where did it come from? Can you tell I have dogs? Yes, and I love it. Okay, um, I think we're just really genuine friends. And there is one really nice thing about sport is that um, real often age doesn't make such a big difference. Um, and and so. Um, we have more fun with our difference in age than anything else, but he has never treated me like anything but a grown-up female uh, with golf expertise. And he's never, he, you know, he'll make jokes about my age, but, um, you know, I can make jokes about the fact that until I got to him, he always wore gray. <laughs> So, uh, no, we are, we are genuine friends. He was a friend of my husband's. Um, you know, the guy showed up when my husband passed away, as did Mike Tirico, as did um, a lot of people. And uh, these people are, are a huge part of me. And, um, and this last part of my life where I've done television um, has been so great. But Terry and I, uh, you know, Grant Boone calls me, called me his TV wife. And I think I'm Terry's TV wife because we can kind of finish each other's sentence, but he has no problem telling me when I'm, you know, not on the mark. And um, in fact, we are really good friends. I know he's doing a senior tournament in Michigan right now. And I spoke to him last night. So uh, he, uh, it, it's that kind of thing. And you know how you have a friend that you don't see maybe for a year or two yep. in between. Well, we would go months and not see each other, but you just pick up right where you were. And, um, and, and, and I think our friendship and a lot of friendships that I've had, uh, they are proof that men and women can be real friends. And anybody who thinks that that's not right, um, I beg to differ. That's uh, very well said. You know, as far as the talent level of men and women today, I don't deny across all sports with, with the specialization, uh, with the speed, the athleticism, but I always believe that, that skill is a very transformational thing, that you can take the skill of, of Lou Alcindor, and if you put him in the NBA draft this year, he'd still be one of the, the, the top picks. And as I apply it to, to golf, if Ben Hogan or Mickey Wright were on a range, people would walk down to them as, as quickly as they would to Dustin Johnson or Bryson DeChambeau. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I do think the greats in the game uh, would be good in any generation. I would have to say though, in the case of Mickey 
Wright and Ben Hogan, uh, we would really have to do some arm twisting to get them to play with modern equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know, Mick, Mickey, um, she loved to hit balls the last ten years of her life, and she—I don't know that she ever even tried a modern golf club. So, she was. Uh, she was a little stubborn and maybe a lot of the best players are a little stubborn. I think they are. Jill, yeah. uh, Judy, I think that, that, that technology um, is, is something that, that not doesn't level the playing field, but narrows the chasm between the truly elite ball hitter and somebody who's good. Uh, and that's why I think technology was not the greatest thing for Tiger. I mean, if everybody remembers, you, you saw it steel shaft, not the biggest head driver, um, and and he was just simply better than everybody. And same same with Hogan, same with Mickey. That that technology, it's like well, more people can hit it with that stuff. Give them this and let them try to shape a golf shot. Couldn't do it. My son coached golf for just a little bit, a few years in high school, and his golf team was at my home uh, one night in Midland and. He took him out in the garage and was showing him <laughs> your equipment, two iron, two iron and three iron and all that. And these kids had never even seen that. Right. You know, and uh, it was shocking to them. And that was probably 15 years ago. So, um, you know, it's, it's come a long way in 15 years, too. Yeah, it has. You, you, when you look at where we are and next, you know, with the U.S. Women's Open, the purse, and, and I had a conversation with somebody who's one of the leaders of one of these organizations a couple of years ago saying, just do it, just do it. And whether right now you, you go, well, I don't know how we can monetize this. Yeah, you will. You, you, you will. I know that this is going to be something that you can be made whole if you, if you double the purse. Um, does doubling the purse inspire the next generation or is it just rewarding the generation that is playing for it currently? It's an interesting question. I don't know if, I don't know if the 10 year olds who are good um, consider that today. I do think probably the best college players that look forward to a professional career consider it. Um, but it is a great reward for the current players who support the LPGA do a lot of the things that you don't get paid for uh, to keep uh, to keep it in the public eye and to uh, just do the right thing with the game of golf. Uh, I think it's a great reward for them. And um, I didn't think I'd see this. Mm. I really didn't. So uh, it's it's something um, unimaginable to me. I, you know, I won. Well, I actually won 28 times. I get credit for 26. One was a team tournament, which I understand, but the other one just wasn't considered official, even though there were 50 LPGA players in it. But I'm going to say I won 28 times. We're I giving you won, 28 here. I never won a million dollars. So you can see how, I'm, how, how I would feel about this. Sure. 1.8 for the winner. And the other thing that I think is going to be an, – and, 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 Beth Ann Nichols wrote about this, and I appreciate that she did. Uh, just saw this this morning that that the women who who missed the cut are going to make twice what they made last year. They're all going to get eight 
$1,000. Now you can say, well, well, now for a number of players who are playing on the, the Epson Tour, who, who you look at what they've made so far this season, that is, that is sustaining the, the, the dream for this season. It's, it's allowing them the, the elasticity to keep. And those are things that are, are the, the fingerprints of the little things that you need to do for the players trying to get to the next level. That, to me, is as impactful as the 1.8 for the winner. And the 1.8 is going to get all the attention. But the 8,000, everybody who's showing up there next week is a big deal to me. Oh, I think you're so right. And um, it's possible that somebody who wins 1.8 uh, comes out of nowhere. But it's more probable that it's somebody who isn't struggling for money. And so uh, we all know uh, what it's like to struggle for money just in your life or um, if you're trying to um, travel the road and play the golf tour. So, the, yeah, you're right. It's a big thing. The, um, the Rota, I'm just looking at where the U.S. Women's Open is going, Pebble Beach next year, and then soon enough, Riviera, Inverness, Oakmont, Piners Number 2, the Curtis Cup, Marion this year, Sunningdale, Bel Air, National Golf Links just announced. What does that say, Judy? It says that the USGA has really stepped up to the plate. And the USGA has uh, uh, set, a, set a mark that um, invariably will be contagious to corporations and other other. Um, organizations that are looking at women's golf. And the, you know, if I could, if I could hope one thing for women's golf, and this is, this is true in golf across the board, except with the biggest events. If I could, if I could wish for one thing, it would be uh, more physical fans. Mm -hmm. I think television's gotten so blooming good that it's so nice to be on your own couch and it's work to be a fan. But you know, imagine, imagine the NCAA, imagine the final four and no people there. Right. Or 30 people there, okay? So physical fans are part of what feeds this whole thing. And when you get a PGA championship, when you get a US Open uh, this, this next week, uh, there will be a lot of physical fans. But we need it in all the right towns and all the right places for women's and men's golf you know, in the country. Uh, you go out of the country and you get huge fans. I mean, I, you know, the the Open Championship, uh, the Women's British Open, uh, those kinds of events when when the LPGA plays in Asia, not a problem. There's all the fans you want. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. Solheim Cup matches, that's been super great. Yeah, it has. And, and you captained two Solheim Cup teams. Uh, uh, women's uh, golf in this country, uh, how, would you, how would you describe the state of, of women's golf in the United States? Are we talking generally? Generally. Yeah, I, I think on the rise. I, I am uh, uh, I'm constantly impressed uh, with all the young girls playing golf. And the way, well... LPGA, USGA girls golf has grown immensely. Um, I have a tiny little uh, cottage industry foundation that, you know, funds some junior golfers for the summer and so on. And um, uh, lots of girls are, are playing golf. And 
I think I'm seeing lots of girls that look like they might be good, but I think we're seeing all girls who might play golf for the rest of their life and might, um, might get their family playing or their friends playing. So I think in the world of the industry of golf, uh, the, the next 10, 20 years ought to really be good. And the USGA with what I've had several conversations with Mike Juan about this, and I've always believed that that USA Golf should be a there, there should be a grout, grassroots investment in the game, whether it's for the elite player or, like you said, uh, players who put golf in their life and keep it there and they're get ready to, to put in a, a significant infusion of money at the grassroots level. Do you think that that is? The right thing to do that that USA Golf should be a federation like all these other nations around the world that we should be investing in the game at every level. Well, yes, I think we should be. I think we have relied on college programs, uh, and I think it has to be earlier than that. Uh, I mean, college college programs have been our minor leagues, and uh, and they've done a darn good job. Don't get me wrong. But um, uh, we are also in our college programs uh, celebrating all the players from around the world. And yet around the world, they all have uh, their own organizations that are, um, that are supporting these kids. And you know, in Sweden, they send them to Spain in the winter to practice and all those kinds of things. So, so they, are, they, are, they are given all those props in their country Plus, they are getting the advantage of our university programs and our college programs. So, um, if 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 we want if we want things to go forward, and not just women but men, um, there should be an avenue that you can take to get great support from a national team. I know Julie Inger is really high on that subject. Um, uh, a gal, uh, Myra Blackwelder, mm-hmm. who played the for some years, um, and her daughter played college golf and all, and her husband's always been involved in golf, but Myra um, ha- has, has really done behind-the-scenes work, but I don't know that much has happened as of yet. A couple things before I let you go. Michelle Wee making the decision. I, I don't think it shocks or surprises many people. Uh, to, to kind of turn away from, from the game on, on a, a pretty full-time basis, which injury and the birth of a child have already done that. How would you describe her career? I always called her kind of a mystery player because you didn't know if she would show up, and she was always pleasant and nice, but you didn't know if her game would show up. And when it, when it really did show up, it was phenomenal. But uh, then there were times when it wasn't at all. Uh, A lot of people think it should have been managed differently. Mm. Um, I can't make those decisions, Um, but I like her. I think she's got a really sweet life right now. And I don't think she wants to work at golf anymore uh, because she's probably been working at golf since she was a pretty young girl. And uh, I think she wants her celebrity in golf to take her into other things. And this I know for absolute positive, man or woman, you cannot play any of these tours part-time. Mm-hmm. 
it, it, and be successful at all. It's just not what's happening this day and age. So I think she's doing, I think she's doing the right thing. And, um, and you know, you got to wish her well, because uh, she has, she has taken the celebrity and the talent that she's had. And uh, it's uh, culminating now in she's in a really good place. She is. And I, I you know, you, you mentioned about the mismanage and I, we all not, I'd like to believe I try to avoid doing this, telling people what's best for them when I have trouble doing the best thing for me is, is I, I think winning is a skill. And even though there was tremendous curiosity with her pursuing things, specifically in the men's game at a young age, all the great players learned how to win at every level. And I think that there was skipping of steps uh, that, that put her in a position where I don't think she won as much because she was not in a position to win an awful lot as she made the journey. Um, that was, that's just, you know, part of my position on it. I, the most important thing, Judy, she seems happy. And that, that to me at the end of the day is really the only thing that matters. Yeah, no, she does. And, um, uh, I, I know she's a U.S. Open champion, but you really have to go back to when she was 14, 15, 16. And she was such a phenomenal golfer. Oh, maybe her maybe instead of the accomplishments that she's had we should celebrate her for um some of the uh some of the great talented exhibition golf we ever saw and we saw because of that we thought this was the next thing and you know maybe and and i i do believe in her heart it was the next thing but I think when different things happened, it became so hard, injuries, this, that, and the other. Uh, she's, she took the time to see another side of life, and she's grasped it um, quite nicely. She certainly has. All right, five quick questions to, to end with. Who's the best ball striker you've ever seen? Uh, in, in the women's game that I ever saw was Mickey Wright, because, you know, Mickey, Mickey was taking that little tiny blade two iron and hitting it sky high. Um, before um, anybody in the women's game could hit it high like that. Um, and the, I just haven't, I didn't see everybody in the men's game, but I think the, uh, the most creative ball striker in the men's game uh, that I've seen was definitely Tiger. I think, I think he could find a shot for any situation. And, um, and I, I also think, I think Tiger was on a mission with his series of teachers to become the smartest golf swing guy in the world. Mm. And he may be, he may be, I mean, I saw him win. I saw him win on a broken leg. And um, now we're seeing him play some extraordinary golf shots uh, with a damaged leg. So, you know, he's, he's my pick. Okay. You have to pick one partner to play a better ball match with, but it's the combination of skill and conversation. It can't just be the best player. They have to be good, but they have to really be able to entertain you and hold a good conversation over the course of the round. Who's that? I'll take Inkster. Okay, it's yeah. a good pick. Because yeah. we would do a lot of laughing. She would do a lot of funny critiquing of my <laughs> flat ball swing. 
And uh, yeah, it would be good. Okay. Your favorite city anywhere in the world to visit that includes a golf tournament to cover? You know, uh, one of my very favorite golf courses in the world, and my favorite, I always say it is, is Sunningdale. So, so I'm going to say anywhere in the world, I'm going to say London and the tournaments at Sunningdale. Okay. When was the last time you got upset with yourself on the golf course? The last time I played. <laughs> okay. You and Yippie's favorite dinner company on the road in your career. Who is it? Oh, boy. You know, I had some great, great times with Peter Alice. And so did Yippie. And um, I'm going to Peter's Memorial at the Open Championship. So um, I would say, you know, Peter Alice could drink a little red wine from time to time, but he could also not drink. He would take months where he said, I'm not drinking now. But uh, this one particular night, he had uh, had a considerable amount of red wine. And um, Yippie men mentioned that at dinner, all of a sudden that he had left his watch in the room. And he was a little concerned and I'm, I'm a Pollyanna, so I think it's gonna be all right, you know? So he doesn't go up there. And we were in a hotel that was kind of big. It took forever to get to your room. So now because of the watch situation, Peter's gonna walk to our room with us. And <laughs> his watch is there. Well, we opened the door and his watch was there and Peter kissed us both on the cheek. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect way to end it. Listen, I am incredibly grateful uh, for the time. I, I'm an enormous admirer of, of all the things you've done, uh, the way you comport yourself. And I will tell you, I, it was at Mirfield Village uh, several years, a couple years ago, and I saw you, and I, I saw you very infrequently. And I wasn't, I, I was trying to get healthy. And, and you said to me, how are you? And you didn't say, how are you? Like, how you doing? You said, how are you? Like, how are you? And it meant a hell of a lot to me. Um, so thank you. And, and thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, you look like a million bucks and, you know, I think, I think you're happier than you've ever been. So go for it. Thanks, Judy. Thank you again to Judy Rankin for taking the time. Uh, I, if you listen to that and you watched it, there, there is a pleasantness to her uh, that is as authentic as it gets. And I love her. Uh, I love her as a broadcaster and as somebody who I've had some time with. And mostly it's like this. She's there and I'm here. But when I've been around her, as generous with her time and with her thoughts uh, as anybody that I've ever encountered in my career. So I appreciate her. And most importantly, I appreciate everybody out there listening and watching to this Five Clubs conversation. It's a huge week with the U.S. Women's Open. If you have not watched or listened to Emma Carpenter's interview and her conversation with Karen Stupples, do just that. Great insight on the women's game. And we'll see you next time on the Five Clubs conversation. Five Clubs conversation.